there, and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined for this episode by Scott. Hello! And in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the sadly sparse work of the Japanese animator, writer and director Satoshi Kon, a favourite around these parts. A native of Sapporo, Kon earned his spurs working under anime luminaries Mamuro Oshii and Katsuhiro Otomo while writing manga and getting his first taste of directing with an original video animation, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. However, it was with his first feature film, 1997's fantasy and reality blurring Perfect Blue, that he came to the world's attention. As well as the blurring between fantasy and reality, Khan's films are noted for female protagonists, themes of performance and identity, and a keen observation of both facial expression and physical bearing that is transmitted even through the relatively simple animation decreed by the constraints of the typically small budgets with which he worked. Satoshi Khan's films are, alas, also noted for being few, as the director was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in May 2010 and died just three months later at the age of only 46, leaving behind him a canon of only four feature films. Those four, though, have influenced other filmmakers, perhaps most notably Darren Aronofsky and Christopher Nolan, and have left a lasting legacy. And, well, yes, those are the films we're going to be talking about, those four. My first introduction to the work of Satoshi Kon was with his first film, Perfect Blue, something that was in fact introduced to me by Scott, who is now going to introduce it to you, dear listener. Yes, uh, Perfect Blue, when Mima Kirogu quits a small-time J-pop idol group to pursue a career in acting, it starts a chain of events that will cause more drama than is in the roles she's offered. Struggling to make a name for herself, she agrees to a controversial rape scene with hope of changing the public's perception of her. Some members of the public, however, seem violently opposed to any change in image, as members of the production crew start being gruesomely killed. This is upsetting enough, but between this stress and that caused by her being introduced to a website, Mima's room, pretending to Mima's diary and containing enough detail to know that the stalker has very close access to her. It's a bad time for Mima's mental health and she will soon not know where the actor ends and she begins, or indeed where the person ends and her public image ends be that the new one or the old. All this sets up a very engaging thriller indeed albeit one that's on repeat viewing, maybe a touch too well signposted and relying a little bit too heavily on a correlation between physical beauty and character for rather the lack of both, which, well maybe hasn't aged well but was a bit of a crutch back in 97. That, however, is a very slight niggle to pick with a story that's all a very tightly told 80 minutes of pleasingly twisting narrative and character work that's never less than captivating. Now, I'll always have a small truckload full of nostalgia for Perfect Blue because I think it was the first anime that I'd seen, certainly in the cinema, that deals with adult themes, or, well, adult themes other than assorted flavours of violence. So it certainly opened up uh, to me a vista of other avenues of story that could be explored in the medium, uh, more concerned with internal conflict than external. But there had been things, of course, like Ghost in the Shell before it, but that was a sci-fi robot Trojan horse containing philosophy, not something, as with Perfect Blue, that could feel as comfortable told in live action. Well, at least thematically. However, one of the advantages of the medium for this kind of thing is the recurring con techniques of merging competing narratives and realities to keep you guessing about what's really happening while not alienating the audiences. I've seen less talented filmmakers try similar tricks and fall flat, but con was a master at it from the, the start. 
Well, I suppose you could say almost objectively that Con went on to do better films on almost every axis you could judge a film. I would always have a soft spot for Perfect Blue for aforementioned nostalgia reasons. So I was perhaps a little bit apprehensive about revisiting it. I've not actually seen this in quite some time before watching it uh, the other day. Uh, but I need not have worried uh, for a theatrical feature debut. It's remarkably accomplished, polished and absorbing. Spoilers, there's not a Satoshi Con film I've met that I won't recommend. So arguing about positions in a league table seems a little redundant, uh, particularly given the tragically small league. But you might as well start at the beginning, and this is a very great beginning indeed. Yes, I like Perfect Blue from the beginning, and I, as I mentioned a little while ago, I have you to thank for that. I hadn't, don't think I'd heard of it when you foisted, foisted, I say, the, <laughs> the DVD upon me back in the late 1990s. Yes, it's like that scene in uh, Clockwork Orange for a grip lately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's a DVD okay technique <laughs> or something. I liked it from the get-go. Mm. I found it striking and interesting, and it kind of does... I know sexy is a weird word to use with animation. I find that kind of uncomfortable, but I think perhaps you'd understand where it's coming from. Like That you might have like a proper adult film that not necessarily for titillation, but um, yeah. that that's like part of humans, rather than the slightly kind of more juvenile take that is at least a lot of other people's other other people's perception of anime. Yeah. And it's certainly got a lot of adults things and and not, you know, tentacle porn. Like basically this isn't Wicked yeah. City, you know. <laughs> Sadly, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean Satoshi Kon's great, but it's not where it's Okadoji Scott. <laughs> Let's face it. But, um and yeah, I like that it's, you know, it, it's an intelligent thing. I mean, it's not the greatest of plots because I think even my first viewing I, I could tell exactly where it's going and I had forgotten almost everything about it because it'd been I, like, I knew this is a film I liked and I'm just like I'll not bother watching it I know I did not like it yeah. <laughs> I was like oh 20 years have passed oops I meant to fix that uh, sooner that's maybe not 20 years but it's been a while I've forgotten like most of the the actual plot of it yeah uh, very strong memory of the visuals and the, the general themes and the actual plot it, it's not subtle there's a couple of times you think maybe it's going to kind of be subversive and kind of do a double bluff or something. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it was ever in danger of that. And, and you can be fairly confident you know where it's going. Uh, there's a line where after Mima has been in a few episodes of Double Bind, the television, the crime-based television show she's on, mm-hmm. and a couple of her former fans are talking and say, it was so boring. Why do all psycho thrillers made in Japan turn out that way? Like, well, quite clearly then it's not going to turn out like you think it would if it was a more conventional story. Yeah. <laughs> but then the the whole, the ugly guy, which is a thing in anime uh, in particular called a gonk. I don't know if you're familiar with that, Scott. Do, 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 do. No, yeah. yeah. Uh, don't, 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 <laughs> I will not get it out of my head for the next year. Don't, please. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I'll just read out the entry from TV Tropes here just because it's uh, rather me fumbling to try and get it into words at the moment because I didn't prepare for this bit. But pretty much the only way in animation to make someone ugly or unusual looking is to do it deliberately and without subtlety. This character is not just unattractive, they're absurdly ugly. Um, <laughs> and the result can be extremely jarring if it deviates too much from the rest of the show's look, though that's usually the point. It goes on to say that these characters use intended as comic relief. That's not the case here, and it's actually not how they're used a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But the the stalker, the me mania guy, it's so obvious that he's like it can't possibly be him, or at least not just him. Yeah. 
so I mean, there's a, a few. I don't know if there's failings there because I guess it's not really the point. Uh, it's just that I would like the the actual plot to have been perhaps a little more sophisticated. It's still enjoyable. Mm. It's just that it's kind of easy to guess. But uh, it's his first feature debut. It's incredibly assured. It's made on a budget of about a million dollars. Yeah, roughly. touch less for a right? Yeah, around that's not a lot of money given the the time intensive nature of animation. Mm-hmm. And but there's like incredible attention to detail. It looks really lovely. There's some really wonderfully inventive scenes that they just stick in the memory, like when Mima's going along the street and and real Mima is bouncing along the tops of lampposts. Yeah, it's just like it just it's so striking, really interesting. And then the way. Partly how it's drawn, partly actually the, the script here too, when it's doing the the sequences with the rape scene, and it's not sh- shot. Um, <laughs> there should be a better word for that in animation. If there's one, I don't know it. <laughs> it's kind of to mind, but it, it's shot in a way that's it's not actually the rape scene. They shoot for the most part. That's a, a minor sec, a minor moment. It's actually the shooting, the shooting of a rape scene. Yeah, <laughs> um, and. Like all the nudity in this and the the bit with the photographer too, it's all really uncomfortable. It's not meant to be titillating. It's meant to be uncomfortable because this woman's sort of been forced into this, um, mm-hmm. at least by societal or career pressure. And the, the nudity is uncomfortable. And like, it's kind of quite a clever thing, a quite difficult thing to be able to get that across in an animation. Yeah. Uh, it works really well. And the rape scene too, as I was saying, when it's like, you see how it's awkward and that is just a job, and she's she's clearly slightly distressed by it. But you can you can see that the character thinking, well, I've agreed to all this, people accounting me that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But with the actor that's on top of her, the would be rapist saying like, right, pause, back to one, we'll do the scene again. It's like he's been like, like oh, I'm really sorry about this. Mm. I quite like that actually because I mean, especially coming to this previous uh, examples of scenes like that in anime for me was Wicked City. Yes. <laughs> it's quite different. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of clever dialogue that just it mixes in the character's reality with the dialogue in the show really well, which is why you're not... Uh, maybe on a first thing you might be a little in doubt about what's happening when, but it's just, it, it works quite well. Like the blind, like, it, it, it all fits in in a way that with the, the trauma that's going on in her head and she feels like she's going mad and it mixes in with what works mm. in the show. It's, it's just nicely done. Yeah. Like that that real blending of the, the fiction and the real life. It's just a really, really accomplished film. Incredibly um, solid for a first-time feature. Mm-hmm. And I just really like and would recommend anybody watch it. Absolutely. You're spot on with the structure and it's something that Con comes back to time and time again and... <laughs> Partly one of the reasons, of course, that he's a sort of great loss is that I, I can't think of anyone, anyone doing films like this. They're so good at blending these kind of various strands of reality and imagination together and uh, keeping an audience guessing. And he only got better at it as time went on. And um, yeah, it's just, I can't think of anyone who's doing something similar. If, if, there any, if, there, if anyone knows of anyone, uh, I fully admit I've not been keeping up to date on either experimental film or anime, so maybe there is someone who's you know taking this ball and running with it, but I can't think of anyone who's doing it. I would like to see more of this kind of thing. Yeah, if you look at some of the work of uh, Masaki Yusa, Scott, we talked about his more conventional Ride Your Wave a couple of months ago now, I guess. Yeah. 
I've honestly lost track of time. It could have been a year ago, and, I, and if you could tell, if you told me that, I would not necessarily doubt you. But his stuff more like like Night is Short, Walk on Girl. Mm. It's not got the same sort of themes as Satoshi Kon's work, but he's kind of doing more outre experimental stuff in a lot of his work. So I mean, I, I'm aware of some of the people out there, but but not a lot. And I don't think it's a common thing by any means. Satoshi Kon is. Uh, it's kind of towering figure yeah. in that general area. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also a properly nerve-jangling soundtrack on this one as well, which uh, I don't know if any of the other ones actually have quite the same effect to me. I, I've always found the, the soundtrack to uh, Perfect Blue to be particularly kind of weirdly haunting in a kind of jangly kind of way. Not that the rest of the films don't have great soundtracks, but certainly the North is kind of good at putting on edge as they are in Perfect Blue. So, yes, yeah, so a lot of things to like in Perfect Blue and very little to dislike. To be honest, actually, I didn't really even notice the soundtrack when I watched Perfect Blue this time around. Other than it may be at times, not the music itself, but like the style of music was a bit well, slightly prescriptive, hmm. uh, which is a problem I have with lots of films. It's so, it's, it's so common to almost be like the default. But uh, I'm not sure I have a point to make other than that I didn't really notice it, uh, which is... <laughs> Unusual. I think I was just more engrossed by the the plot and the character in particular yeah. this time, and I was less thinking about the music. Sure. Which because I did notice the music in the other films, and and one in which I'll particularly mention it. Yeah, I have to go watch that again quite soon just to uh, listen to the music. <laughs> you know, as every time I'll get to go, oh right, yes, okay, of course. But <laughs> um, at the moment, I can't quite bring it to mind. Fair enough. Uh, shall we move onwards then to 2001's Millennium Actress? That's all Millennium Actress then. Interviewer Genya Tachibana, documenting the closure of a now-defunct movie studio, travels with his cameraman to the home of the reclusive actress Chioko Fujiwara, the most prominent figure associated with the studio in its heyday, who mysteriously retired from acting and went into seclusion at the end of the 1960s while still a big star. He has been granted an exceedingly rare, if not unique, interview with a now elderly actress, occasioned by his returning to her a possession she thought lost. A small key, precious to Chioko, that opens the most important thing there is, and given to her by a young painter and revolutionary during the Second Sino-Japanese War. A man who had a profound effect on her life, but whose name she never knew, and whose face she now cannot remember. This is the stepping-off point for Chiyoko's recounting of her life and work to her rapt Kenya. In his previous film, Satoshi Kon explored what seems to have been something that captivated, if not obsessed him, the fluidity of objective versus subjective reality, and how the two overlap and even mix, particularly when art is involved. In Perfect Blue, the protagonist's stresses and doubts caused her reality to become infected by her work, with her role and its plot seeming to echo what was happening to her in the real world. Something similar happens in Millennium Actress, but from the other side. Con takes the idea that actors draw from their own life experience to inform a role and runs with it, with Chioko's roles reflecting her own history, desires and choices, as she chases the mysterious painter across time and place, from Japan to Manchuria, World War II to the Edo period and on through the Meiji Restoration and then into a sci-fi's future and space. Each part of Chioko's life, or roles, is told from the point of view of Genya and the cameraman Kyoji, who, much to their surprise and consternation, find themselves not floating observers but near participants in the on-screen action, 
having to dodge flaming timbers, arrows and other hazards. Genya, who it soon becomes clear is, and always has been, infatuated with Choco, quickly becomes an actual participant, showing up time and again to aid Choco's character, reflecting something that happened in real life. For me, Millennium Actress is Khan's masterpiece. It's inventive, touching, funny and emotional, and flows from one tone to another with ease. While Choco's pursuit of the painter is necessarily, and obviously futile, the story never becomes maudlin, nor really tragic, even if it may seem like a tale of a life wasted, as Choco tends towards sanguine and philosophical rather than depressive and defeated. Con had polished his craft of being perfect blue in this, with Millennium Actress displaying greater nuance and depth in its animation, and a bit more playfulness too. Of particular note is a representation of Choco, from the shy teenage schoolgirl meeting the painter and choosing to take her first film role, through to the elderly woman whose youth returns as she recounts her adventures. Aided by three different actresses voicing Choco at different stages, Con's keenly observed animation portrays ageing through facial expression and physical bearing, allowing us to feel a genuine progression of an individual. In the negative, I have a handful of minor points, most of which seem to be the almost inescapable convention of the genre. For example, the cameraman is too broad and frankly cartoonish for my tastes, though his reactions and comments do provide provide many of the film's funniest moments, so it's clearly not a character that I'm overly bothered by. And a few too many of Genya's reactions are of that goofy, exaggerated type that bear little resemblance to anything an actual human would do. Other than that, I think Millennium Actress is superb, and I'd recommend it to almost anyone. Yeah, it's a joy, isn't it? Um, Yes. (laughs) Try to think how you could describe this as someone who's not seen any of Con's work. And the the best I can come up with is if someone took Martin Scorsese and gave him, like, I don't know, Wes Anderson's stylistics and kind of got them (laughs) to make an anime. And it's just that it's got this lovely epic scope at the same time as being exceedingly whimsical, but without being annoying at the same time. And does a tremendous job of, you know, charting a character's development over it. I mean, it's it's obviously kind of (laughs) incredibly whimsical and that kind of thing. It's it's certainly not going for any kind of realism other than magical realism, Uh, but it's just tremendous... (laughs) Uh, tremendously enjoyable as it as it goes through it and unfolds as the uh, goes through time and space and yeah it's just really enjoyable to watch. I can see where you're coming from with the annoyances. I than to say that I just didn't I didn't find them all that annoying <laughs> this time through. I think the cameraman's very funny indeed, so I can certainly let him go. Um, annoyance but, is perhaps a, a a stronger word than I I mean. Um, yeah, it's more just kind of that slightly aloof, vaguely mm-hmm. bored kind of background cars are just kind of so common in these things um, yeah. that it just felt a bit cliche I guess is probably a better word than annoying but as I said it really he's responsible for so many of the funniest moments that it, yeah. it's clearly fine. Most of it kind of works for him because he's the one who's like least involved in the yeah. acting out story retelling so he always has the kind of air of a kind of slightly detached aloof outsider to it it's the only one that's actually not getting drawn into it so much because he doesn't care as much as the one. So, <laughs> yeah, that's by the end though he does, I like yeah. to bring him around he clearly cares by the end Yeah, yeah. Because um, how could you not? Yeah, it'd be very difficult to watch this and not get involved with it. Uh, yeah, um, 
don't have an awful lot else to say, but yes, I'm to completely agree with everything you're saying. It's uh, it is really really great work. Um, the animation, and all that's fantastic. The, the kind of scope of it, the various different eras, all of them are really charming and uh, very well told. And just the actual story of it, the character, you know, maybe doesn't have a lot of narrative chops to it, but in terms of like just characterization, absolutely fantastic and highly enjoyable to to kind of work your way through and, and uh, go along for the ride with. Yeah, great stuff. What I do wonder about it is if I would actually get even more out of it if I knew much about the two actresses that it's based on, two real actresses. One of whom I don't know, the other one is a woman who I know has worked with Ozu um, a couple of times in particular in Late Spring Tokyo Story, Ozu's real masterpiece films. Mm. Whether like knowing something a bit more about them or their roles would maybe Mm. make this even richer. Oh, I didn't realise it was actually based on uh, any real people. That's, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, um, th- those two actors, um, both of whom started kind of mid-teens, so very similar similar time period to Chiyoko in this as well. Right. Uh, so whether like having a, a stronger familiarity then would just, I, I don't see how it could possibly make the film better. I think it's absolutely yeah. superb, but they would just give it kind of perhaps more texture or more yeah. poignancy. yeah. But without knowing anything about those, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen those two Ozu films I mentioned, but you know, I'm not really pulling, I'm not enough of that into this to, to really see if it's there. Uh, but yeah, other than that, those two films, I, I know nothing about them. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and I enjoy this thoroughly. So I, I imagine it's not necessary to do lots of <laughs> experiences that it's interesting that it's yeah. based on real people. And I wonder if that just maybe adds some extra texture. Yes, yes. Why don't we move on then to. Con's third film, which I had considered suggesting for something I had had in mind of, well, the, the nascent idea I had, Scott, was unconventional Christmas films mm. <laughs> that we might have done an episode on that at some point, and this was one of the first names to go into that um, idea, uh, yeah. which is Tokyo Godfathers, which is an unconventional Christmas film-ish. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Christmas often stylized, of course, as a magical time of the year. Uh, and although ultimately that is the case in the 2003 outing Tokyo Godfathers, the lead characters probably would not agree at the outset. Uh, three homeless people have bandied together into a loose, argumentative family unit. The teenage runaway Miyuki, gruff alcoholic and apparent victim of normative determinism, Jin, and maternal former drag queen Hannah, whose stretched sense of togetherness is tested further when they find an abandoned newborn baby in the garbage on New C- uh, Christmas Eve. While Jin's looking to go immediately to the authorities, it seems Hannah is looking on this as something of a miracle and wants to keep the child. After all, the previous parents clearly weren't parenting correctly. Uh, this soon fades, and over the course of the Christmas holidays, they seek to care for and ultimately reunite the kid with the family. The investigation itself will, however, uncover more about their own character's past than that of the kid, often prompted by moments of such extreme coincidence that maybe thinking of it in terms of miracles is not completely unfounded. Uh, I certainly don't have anything negative to say about Tokyo Godfathers. The closest I can get to it is thinking that the final revelation about the true parents of the newborn makes for a bit of a last act drama bomb that ultimately I don't think is needed because the primary reasons to enjoy the film aside from the usual con table stakes for it simply being a beautiful thing visually and audibly is the interplay between Miyuki, Jin and Hana which is rarely less than delightful. That said, Tokyo Godfathers is perhaps a more straightforward narrative than you'd come to expect from Con, at least in as much as whether it does provide a few revelations and twists, they come through good old-fashioned character development rather than through smashing realities together and having surprises fall out. It's not exactly Con's take on the straight story, but it's at least a straighter story than his others. 
as such, there's probably an argument to be made that it's Khan's least interesting work on a narrative sense. Uh, however, there's an equally valid counter-argument to be made that the absence of world-bending frippery has allowed the characters the time and space to be a more rounded and well-realised ensemble than in any of his other films. I suppose you pay your money and you take your choice. However, as mentioned previously, the only valid choice is to watch all of Khan's films, as they, Tokyo Godfathers included, come with their seal of huge enjoyability. Well, figuratively speaking, I couldn't get the distribution for the actual seals sorted out in time, uh, but yes, with its roster of colourful characters in both personality and design sense, uh, it's a delight to spend 90-odd minutes with it. Yeah, and I'd actually add that there's a, there's a fourth major character in Tokyo Godfathers, and that's Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. I really like the way it's portrayed here. Uh, I've not unfortunately been to Tokyo, but I've you know, kind of been fascinated by the place for a long time. I've seen a lot of films set there. And this feels as much as you can tell through the medium of film, in particular an animated one. It kind of feels quite different, but in a way more real than a lot of the ones I've seen. It's certainly yeah. less detached, which I guess is a big part of such a big city as Tokyo, but. I don't know, the, just the way the buildings are drawn and the lovely attention to detail in this film. In fact, all yeah. of um, Khan's films, like The Incredible Caretaking with the Macintosh performer in Perfect Blue to make sure yeah. that's all exactly right. Um, <laughs> and then little touches here like the the sandwich wrappers and the the things in the grocery stores, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but the, the city seems to have that sort of same thing as well. Mm. Uh, just the way the, the streets are done, the... That's just the, the whole feel of it. It's, it's not a bit of an easy thing to describe. I think it's just the, whole, the visual, the sound, the tension, it all just comes together just to give it the this, this city a, f- a certain feel. Yeah. That um, maybe with a kind of slightly magical touch, which fits in with all of the with all of the rest of what's happening because it, yes it's it's miracles that are happening because it, it, it takes coincidence and goes way beyond coincidence it's miracles it's <laughs> yeah. the only way to explain it which is fine because because I don't like films that are based on coincidence but this is quite clearly not that it's, it's yeah. very deliberate um, where was I going with that I think I was just yeah, the, the whole thing came so it's like with like Tokyo just being this this character as well that it, it's oh god I don't know Tokyo's good <laughs> so is what I'm saying uh, <laughs> I had, it's annoying, I had considerably more cohesive thoughts the night after I watched this again. And I was getting really tired. I thought, I won't write these down. I'll remember them in the morning. And I didn't. <laughs> and I was really frustrated. And I wasn't going to go back and watch it again just for that. Uh, <laughs> so that, that, that'll that learn me. You know, I'll, I'll not do that again until the next time I do that again. Uh, <laughs> and there were lots of like little touches here that I don't, remember noticing last time or at least I don't remember whether I noticed them or not uh, like when they're at the the Christian mission at the beginning they're getting food and Hannah's talking about oh, I wish I'd been blessed with a child and maybe there'd be a miracle and I, and I can have a child with this male body that I don't really like and don't want hmm. and the, the poor woman serving a soup and he goes oh, you big of me a good one I'm, I'm eating for two and she's just like <laughs> standing there slack jawed looking at him um, <laughs> then a short while later after they've got the baby and they're in the train station and they're on the phone and that same woman's coming down the stairs or the escalator yeah and she just like looks and goes there was a miracle <laughs> I was like, and there's lots of little touches like that little callbacks that um like kind of blinking you'd miss it sort of things uh it's really it's a really richly textured world that he's created in this film yeah i think that's maybe con's uh con's so good at structure in his films, that's what really shines through. And even though it's not doing the kind of structure the way that um, 
he does in other films where he's like <laughs> trying to blend things together. He's still managing to blend little character moments throughout it, and he's got a really great eye for how how a jigsaw of a script should be put together to kind of maximise enjoyability. And uh, that, I guess that's just part of that um, that skill set that he has, and is so sadly missed from a lot of other films. Yeah, it's and for him and his family more than anybody else. It's a tragedy of the world that he died mm. so young. Um, and with having only managed to produce the four films, yes. Yeah. So what he because he was um, he clearly so gifted and like what have he missed out on? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, there's some kind of like wonderfully kind of wacky things in here. It's not a word to particularly like, but I can't think of another one to describe it. Like <laughs> the end credits where Beethoven's Ode to Joy is sung in Japanese um, over the footage of the Tokyo Tower dancing. Yes. <laughs> okay, yeah. I like this. I'm on board. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, you're right. It is kind of more conventional. This, but it's just so lovely. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of humour going through his cons films as well, which really helps. Um, yeah. So even at the points where things are getting a bit darker, it, it will leaven it with a bit of humour. But it's it's never like a tonal whiplash kind of thing. Yeah. So it's just, uh, it's just such a lovely film. Let's round things out with look at his last film, Paprika. Then. Yes. Um. Which, from your comments earlier, seems like it's going to be the first time we diverge an opinion in this episode, Scott, which is actually more than anything a disappointment for you, because on this viewing, well, we'll see. In the near future world of Paprika, a new technology has been developed, dubbed the DC Mini, a device that can allow someone to see another's dreams. It's a little like a real-time version of Strange Days Squid, if you recall that, <laughs> though with a therapeutic rather than law enforcement intention. If it falls into the wrong hands, though, it could allow someone to invade another's dreams, control them, and eventually, and somehow, allow the real world and humanity to be destroyed. It falls into the wrong hands. Beginning at the company where the DC Mini was developed, and with relatively small stakes at hand, like causing someone to throw themselves out of a window or off of a building... The scientists who created the device, Dr. Atsuko Chiba and Dr. Kosuko Tokita, must track down the terrorists who stole their prototype devices, aided by police detective Toshimi Komakawa. They have another ally too, Paprika, a feisty redhead with superhero abilities who guides patients to their dreams in therapy and who may be Chiba-san's avatar in the dream world, or maybe a facet of a split personality or maybe a constructed but entirely independent and real person that just happens to live inside of Chiba-san's head? Hmm. Or all of the above, or neither. Yes. yes. <laughs> As events progress, the real world and the dream world begin to merge, and the great parade or random mundane yet incredibly sinister crap that represents the dream, <laughs> or possibly the psyche, of one of the initial suspects spills across into the subconscious of other people, and eventually via poorly documented mechanisms, into the real waking world, threatening existence itself. People think dreams are great, and, well, dreams are not great and people are wrong. (laughs) Most probably they're thinking of daydreams, which typically are great. Real dreams are often terrible, though. Nonsensical, creepy, disturbing, unsettling. Paprika does a good job of conveying all of that. And that's why I found watching Paprika, at least on this viewing, a miserable experience. 
which saddens me no end. This is not something particular to this film, though. I generally, though not without exception, dislike dream sequences in films. They're not enjoyable, uh, and this also extends to video games, where dream sequences are also not uncommon, and where they're pretty much universally terrible experiences. Though often that's a mechanical problem more than one of content. I'm looking at you, Max Payne and the baby level. Mm-hmm. I can read all of the imagery, I can parse all of the illusion and metaphor, I get it, I just don't enjoy it. And since Paprika is almost all a trippy nightmare with tons of weird crap happening, I don't like it. That's something that disappoints me more than anything else because, well, it looks fantastic. Blying its budget, it's wonderfully colourful and inventive, and Susumu Murasawa's soundtrack is amazing, with the parade track in particular being one of my favourite pieces of film music ever. With all of that said, though, perhaps the most curious thing about Paprika is that one of the films on which it was particularly influential, Christopher Nolan's Inception, is a film that I love. Brains are, like, weird, man. (laughs) Sadly, and unlike the rest of Satoshi Kon's work, I simply cannot recommend Paprika. Though if you'd asked me that one the first time I watched it, I would have done so. Again, brains are weird, man. Um, (laughs) Not least because, cruelly and without warning, the film opens with a clown. Those miserable, painfully unfunny tedious, negatively entertaining nightmare things that exist solely to make the world less wondrous. Clowns are the worst and I'm not having it. I should point out this clown's there for, what, ten seconds at best and then repeated again about half an hour later? I think it's, it's, it's the first thing in the film. <laughs> it's, a, it's not on. Yes. Um, I had... I was fairly sure I'd seen Paprika before. Um, when I viewed it this time round, it became painfully apparent that either I haven't or I've completely forgotten everything <laughs> that happened in it. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if I have the same reaction uh, as you do second time round. However, I generally have a higher tolerance for dream logic. So therefore, I'm probably not going to be as annoyed by humour on it on the second time round. So I really got that kind of first viewer experience of just being able to soak in all these wonderful visuals and audio cues. And yeah, it, it's an absolute treat on the kind of more superficial levels of it. I expect also have been spared by not having to actually write down anything for this review. Um, If I had to analyse any of it, then I'd probably be a bit less um, positive about my experience because, I mean, it is, as you mentioned, nonsense, all of it. Um, Deliberately so for a lot of the time, but yes, there's not really much of a through line you could make um, that would have any... this anything that's happening here have any kind of sense it's you know purposely very difficult to pick out what's happening in a dream and what's happening in reality and how anything that could happen that apparently in reality could even cross over from the dream world you know a lot of it is nonsense and you just kind of have to make your peace with it being nonsense and if you can do that then uh certainly there's a lot of uh more superficial joy that could be taken from it but and I still think there's a lot of nice character work in there. Papika and uh, the Doctor, who is the kind of split personality of one or the other. Um, I think that, that kind of interplay works quite well and kind of harkens back to the Perfect Blue scenario. Um, a lot of it's a lot of the supporting cast otherwise is a bit less successful. Um, you know, the, the big fat guy who's basically just depicted as being fat and childlike and kind of weird. Uh, that's kind of weird, strange. And the, the older professor who's like strangely tiny um almost as, yeah the, 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 there's kind of some weird sort of anime outliers and it's kind of hard to see mm. whether those are intentionally just 
again, also kind of part of the kind of dream logic of the whole thing, or we're meant to take that as being real as well. And as with almost anything to do with dreams, it's not worth thinking about <laughs> because it's a dream and it's therefore nonsense. So, you know, analysing or over-analysing those points is probably not worth doing. Um, but certainly on what I believe, at least as my first viewing through it, I, I did enjoy it. Um, I didn't like it certainly as much um, as his other work, but it's so um, stunning in terms of a, an audiovisual presentation that I would recommend it to anyone. I certainly would not want to revisit this anytime soon, um, as opposed to the other films, all of which I think I would uh, want to watch over and over again. I think Paprika is maybe one of these one you kind of get everything you're going to get from it first time through, and watching it again is probably only just going to expose flaws rather than um, open up anything new to you. So I, I guess I can kind of see where where you're coming from and where I might be on the same arc as you are. But thankfully, I am earlier on that arc, so I can just say that I liked it a lot. And uh, yeah, I think I think it would be worth watching at least one. I don't know. Just this time, I really find myself experience. I I don't like that kind of dream stuff because it's like here's a bunch of weird crap. I was like, yeah, that happens to me inside of my head every night. I don't like it then either. I, <laughs> I don't want to like actively seek out more of it to watch. It's not any fun. I mean, it's not always disturbing in the moment. Well, not that all yeah. my dreams are disturbing, fortunately. But when you're in a dream, you don't realise. But if you start thinking about it, it's like, oh, that was super creepy. I don't want to do that again. Um, yeah, and. And this, you know you're saying, Scott, that you know, it's all meant to be a dream and don't think about it. But that's the thing, though. In this film, it's not all a dream because the world is going to end. That's the whole. That's the stakes here because they don't do, fortunately, I guess in one way, the whole, oh, it was all just a dream thing because when you see the wide shots of the city at the end, it's like, oh, no, there's basically a massive hole in the middle of it, which is where the giant chairman fella was sucking the world into. Or and is the there... Building- and all the buildings are destroyed. So it's like it clearly happened. It's like, or did uh, it? <laughs> um, and yet, I just I don't have a lot of tolerance for this. A lot of the time, it's like dreams are weird and crap. And like, here's all this weird crap happening. Great. Oh, great! Now there's a baby, and the baby sucking things in and becoming a massive. What? No, go away. <laughs> I still didn't remember the baby from my last viewing of this. Uh, this is just... I mean, I wouldn't really think this because of how much respect I have for the rest of Satoshi Kon's work, but it does have the kind of the ring of being weird for the sake of being weird. And I can mm. too much respect for him to think that's actually the case, but that's how it feels. And uh, I don't know. And it's kind of because I love the soundtrack so much. And so I was, I was really looking forward to going back to this. Like, I really like people because, like, oh, oh no, this isn't good. And I like, by the what was I thinking before? Um, again, though, the fact that I had two such disparate experiences makes me wonder whether it is a case of a second view and just showing up flaws, or whether well, just caught me in the wrong mood, which is less likely but possible. Uh, but yes, I, I have no particular enthusiasm to go back and try it again anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. What might just be interesting is whether anything ever comes from a dreaming machine, which is the uh, sorry, we're skipping on from uh, Pavika now, Scott. Uh, which is the the film that Com was working on when he died. The the producer that he worked with, the, the Madhouse, these films were put out through. Had originally wanted to try and get someone to finish it. It'd been done, it's like a twenty percent done, something like that. There's a lot of storyboards had done for some key animation frames, that sort of thing. Yeah, and then 
they died that was kind of put on hold. It's like a third of the shots were finished, I think, like something. So a chunk of work had been done. And like, th- there's less well, reshoots would be the the live action word in animation because it's, they're so planned out. So, you know, it's not like they would, um, likely to be going back and changed much. Mm. Uh, but his producer, Maso Murayama, had toyed with getting that back. And one of the names associated with was the director of Mirai. Mamoru Hosada, I think, he'd been attached at some point, but I think the general thought was like, if he finishes it, it's either some kind of weird hybrid and it should be all his. Yeah. Or um, they find some way to make all cons. And and the way he's, the producer talks about it in the end was that it's like, we'll just take cons concept. So he could basically, his story, but then let someone make it from beginning to end. Yeah. But I, I, I've not heard anything about that in a while, which is a pity. I was like, because he's got such strong ideas, Connor has such strong ideas that it might be interesting to see how somebody else, also very talented in the field, yeah. could do with, with taking that and maybe just like working on it, whether it would be, feel like a collaboration, whether it would feel entirely the person's, like, or whether like, somebody could do something interesting with Con's really strong ideas. I, I don't think there's anything happening with that at the moment. Uh, I mean, that may just be a funding thing rather than a will thing, but it's kind of on the yeah. background at the moment. Last I heard, any kind of idea for that was dead. Um, would I think be interesting? I think maybe to go back and maybe we'll take a look at. Um, is it Paranoia Agent? Is uh, the, the TV series he was kind yeah. of quite heavily involved in, but obviously he's not. He didn't do every episode of it, so that might be a kind of interesting way to see how. Yeah, I did. I was doing some research for this. I saw someone mention. Um, Paranoid Agent in relation to Twin Peaks uh, mm. and I love Twin Peaks, it's one of my favourite things ever so if there's any sort of correlation there at all, any resemblance, that, that may well be something worth checking out. Yes <laughs> Well that will wrap us up for today, um, if there's anything you would like to get in touch with us, um, either this or any other uh, film related reason or any reason at all, then do so through email at podcast at com or through twitter, twitter.com slash fudsonfilm and until next time you should take care of yourself and you should take care of each other and I will bid you adieu and I'm sure that Drew will do too. Be excellent to each other That's not adieu <laughs> Adieu Thank you, Jesus Was that so hard? Yes <laughs> <laughs> Bye bye. <laughs>